0: Two Real
1: Cinema Club. I'm James Rezica. And I'm Andres Lorente. Every week on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch a couple of films, and one is usually old and one is new, and we make some comparisons and uh, draw some distinctions between the two. Uh, this year we have Christmas on, on our minds and in our years. And in our hearts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Not on our screens.
1: And on our screens. We'll be watching, uh, well, we watched already, your Christmas or mine, Uh I can't call it an instant classic, but it's uh, on Netflix. <laughs> it exists. 20, uh, 2022, where are we at? Uh It's uh, a film, a wonderful romantic sort of comedy kind of thing for the season. And then we compare that with the absolute classic, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, directed by Frank Capra and starring Jimmy Stewart. And that uh, dates to 1946.
0: 1946. So I'll turn it over to Jimmy. Yeah, go. So, we should do the socials before yes. we start talking about the film. So, as always, um, providing Twitter is still working, by the time that this uh, podcast goes out, <laughs> you can find us on Two Real Cine Club at uh, Twitter.com. We're on Instagram, Two Real Cinema Club at Instagram.com. We have a blog, Two Real Cinema Club.com. So, you can come there. It's probably the best place to leave us a message. Or you can email us, Two Real Cinema Club at gmail.com. Uh, if you enjoy the show, or if you don't, tell your friends. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And we also stick them up on YouTube as well. So there's no excuse. Leave us a review if you can. It makes a big change, a uh, big uh, big difference to us. Um, please let people know. So it's uh, it's Christmas time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have both watched this the new uh, Amazon uh, backed. Uh, Christmas movie here in the UK. Tell me about it. I, well, <laughs> I'm hoping, I assume I watched the
1: same film because I thought it was on Netflix, but you're right, it was Amazon, wasn't it?
0: It's, yeah, it's Amazon in this country. It's, it's been widely publicized in this country. It's yeah, been did... on the sides of all the buses oh, here. Okay, it's okay. been yeah, really heavily pushed. Aha. Uh-huh. Did, uh, did you pay for it? <laughs> did you have to give <laughs> money to see this film? I'm, I'm happy to say it came down the pipe for free, okay. yeah. It's part of Amazon Prime, so okay, you don't need prime. to pay anything extra. Okay, I think... So they're yeah. advertising as a reason to sign up to Amazon Prime, because not only do you get your parcels delivered, but you get to see your Christmas or mine okay. for free.
1: Okay, okay, okay. I think that was the case for us, too. I think we do have an Amazon Prime membership in the family. So it just uh, cost the, uh, the the subscription of Prime. Um I feel like this was payback for Blonde. I insisted that we watch Blonde a while back, and I think I apologized to you for that. Um, but this is payback a little bit. It's an hour and 35 minutes, so I still owe you like an hour and 15 minutes of of, of your life. But, woo, I lost a little bit of mine. Um, this is directed by Jim O'Hanlon, who, according to IMDb, has directed 268
0: episodes of Coronation Street. So he, that that is that. If you don't know, that is the biggest soap opera in the UK. It's I absolutely do. enormous. Yeah, yeah. I watched, that is a lot of episodes. I watched
1: a yeah, I watched a little bit uh, when I was in uh, England, but really not many episodes. Maybe a handful, and I didn't I didn't see that he had directed any of the ones that I saw. But that's a lot.
0: I mean, that would be is it weekly? Oh, I, I think it's like five shows a week, something oh, like God. that. I, mean, I think they, they make a lot. Okay. So they're so like, like a, yeah, that's like this, yeah, that's many months worth. Okay, more than that, that's I, what think. I think. Wow. Um, so he's the director,
1: um, and it was written and, di- and created written and created. I was really interested by that credit because I usually think of that as a TV credit. Um, uh, when someone's creating a show, um, we don't really talk about people creating a movie, but uh, it was written and created by Tom Perry, who's an actor and a writer,
0: and um, it was an interesting credit. Did you notice that as well? I didn't spot that. I did spot that he's a UK comic, so he's yeah. kind of come up through the stand-up scene. Okay. Um so and you know, and he's not somebody that I know. And you know, it's a long time since I've done any stand-up. Yeah. But you know, that's that's been his route in. And I think he has done other TV writing, but it's largely yeah, he's he's a comedian.
1: Okay. And I had recognized on uh on IMDB for him, for Tom Perry. He looked familiar, and I think he's on one episode of Ted Lasso, so I remembered that face ah. from Ted Lasso. Yeah, so he's probably a little bit familiar to American audiences as a result. Ah. Um, and it's interesting that he you mentioned that he's a stand-up comic, because uh, there are a couple things about this film that make me feel like there were he was writing stuff for comics to sort of bring to life. <laughs> um, so um, Asa Butterfield plays, uh, I guess he's Hubert James Hughes, but he goes by James in the film, um, and... Um, the other is, um, uh, her name is Haley uh, Taylor, plays Cora Kirk. Is that? No, no, uh, Cora Kirk, I'm sorry. Cora Kirk plays Haley Taylor. Cora Kirk. <laughs> also features uh, Alex Jennings and David Bradley and Harriet Walter, some familiar faces from, I guess, British film and television. Yeah, yeah. I see some stalwarts here on there. Yeah. Uh, takes place in, well, it starts sort of in London, Marlevan Station, and ends up in the English countryside. Um, and Hubert uh, James, or just James Hughes, um, and Haley are they're romantically involved. They seem to be, have, they've only been together, it seems like a couple of months, but, um, they're both headed off for, uh, sort of a holiday break at their respective houses. Very much in love, it seems. Um, but they get a little bit confused and they sort of end up on the wrong trains or there's some confusion. They, they want to be on the wrong trains cause they're each sort of trying to go, um, to each other's home to surprise one another. But, um, as a result, um, they end up going to each other's homes for Christmas holiday, um, somewhat by accident. And,
0: um, I was going to say that I um I, I watched this film with the whole family yeah. and the children oh. asked me you know having been forced to sit through some some not so great films lately <laughs> and they asked me oh, what's it about is it any good yeah. and when I explained that setup that yeah. it's you know boyfriend and girlfriend and he wants to sneak onto her train to yeah. surprise her at Christmas, and she wants she sneaks onto his train to surprise him at Christmas. So they both go to each other's houses. Yeah. Um, and my children thought that was a great idea, and I think this kind of it's not a meat cute, it's like a train cute or whatever yeah. at the start of the film. Yeah. It's you know it's a great high concept cute idea. I think it's good, and, and those first sort of ten minutes are actually. I know we're going to complain about this film quite a lot. <laughs> but Those first ten minutes are actually you know fairly cute and. Effective and it's a nice setup that I think really works. I agree. I
1: think it's an endearing setup. um, But immediately I'm thinking, well, why? You know, you're on the right train, you think, to surprise your partner, but they don't really go looking for one another on (laughs) each other's train. Um, And it's, I guess they. The idea is that they want to surprise the partner when they get to their town and and end up getting off the same train that the other one was on. Um, But we know it's not going to be a surprise for the audience. So it's really – and then they stretch it out a little bit. Like James looks back and there's a woman wearing exactly what um, (laughs) Haley was wearing on the train. So he's really anxious to surprise her when he gets to town and it ends up being the wrong woman. So I think they go go a little bit far to make it all
0: happen. But, yes, it is a a meet-cute of sorts or a train-cute. I like that. Um, that incidentally that woman who was wearing the same outfit as yeah, haley yeah. who he very briefly hugs and then she says oh, what's, your, what's your story yeah. um that is uh Lizzie Roper who is uh, like a UK uh, comedian um, uh, who I used to gig with oh, like, really? 20 years ago yeah <laughs> she is lovely um, and she had like a long period in the west End when she was um in one flu of the cuckoo's nest oh really um so it's nice to see her turn up for what I'm sure was like you know, a two-hour shoot or yeah. something just quickly turn up put the hat on sure Bill gag Lizzie thanks just a cameo um, yeah, yeah no nice to see her I haven't seen her for a long time I think
1: she James is walking away I think she does proposition him in a in quite a suggestive
0: way as he's walking <laughs> so she's up for it but um,
1: yeah, that's the
0: Lizzie I know yeah
1: You're nice um Hayley conveniently leaves her phone on a train and uh there's really no signal I think she arrives in a town called Kemble is it Kemble yeah well, something like that isn't it yes yeah, something something very made-up sounding um which is close to James's uh James's home um I think we need to do a future popcorn counter. I have this theory of how cell phones have either, like, irreparably damaged films or changed them forever. (laughs) Ah, This is just a very convenient thing. You have to – but in this day and age, you have to go out of your way to, like, losing a uh, cell phone in order to put someone just in this position of vulnerability where they can't contact anyone. Because in this day and age, you can contact anyone from anywhere. So Yeah. um, I think the antagonist early on is just this confusion of uh, missing their trains and being put in a situation, sort of fish out of water for both of them. And we start to learn a a little bit about uh, each of their lives without them in their home environment. So uh, James is rich, wealthy, 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 lives in basically a castle in the (laughs) Gloucester um, countryside. Um, So that's where – but he ends up in uh, Haley's uh, neighborhood, sort of a modest neighborhood in in Macclesfield. That that is a real town, I believe, in in England.
0: That is a real place, yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So he
1: ends up with her very working-class family. Um, Her family's house is just super over-the-top decorated for um, the holidays as opposed to uh, James's castle uh, where uh, Haley arrives. And it's very quiet. There's just – I think it's – she's sort of like a – housekeeper uh, Fiona who uh, is there and greets her and Fiona's played by um, Harriet Walter um, very empty place and James's father is Hubert James hum- Humphrey the or my, I think he's just Hubert Hughes that's it But he was a, he's, uh, what do you decide, he's like a lord of of Gloucester. What is it, Earl of Gloucester, he
0: say? I thought it was Lord of Gloucester, something like that. You said Earl of Gloucester might be more accurate.
1: Definitely in a titled position, I suppose. Um, These two towns, um, I looked on the map.
0: Sort of. (laughs) Sort of.
1: Uh, Probably about uh, almost 200 kilometers apart from one another, but... sometime in this film it is possible or it seems to be possible to drive either a food truck or farm equipment <laughs> through a winter <laughs> storm to get between them so there is some distance between these places but it sort of shrinks in the third act when one when that yeah it's kind
0: of a geography isn't it yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so they end up in each other's houses that's sort of the whole first act is how they end up um, sort of getting uh, more and more entrenched in the other's house for the holidays um, it's there's a big storm running through in the country so all the trains are down and then you you miss cabs and whatnot and it's just this uh this the these the series of events of people trying to get uh, onto a train and get back to their right house but um they're both stranded at each other's house And it's kind of interesting that her family really takes james in immediately whereas it takes a lot longer for um Haley to endear herself to uh, james's father um there's very little uh, like explanation of who uh who James is with uh, uh, with Haley's family at first, so but they seem to be very welcoming. He <laughs> s- sort of mis- meets her little brothers first, and they play a little trick on him, and, and uh, I don't know, they trick him for five pounds each or something like that. Um, but lo and behold, everyone's missed their last train. They've got to stay with each other's families, and that's sort of the getting them into the uh, this this point where they just have to uh, become family with one another. So.
0: Uh, kin um, well, The way the boys Trick him out of Out of the money Is another one of those You know Anachronisms isn't it Because you know he, The reason oh, yeah. he gives them The money is because He's looking for the house Yes the, Like the road where Haley lives Yeah And again anybody Who has a smartphone On their pocket Is never lost Anywhere I, in the I world He has GPS way the, For you know, everything yeah. in the, on, the, on the earth yep. In his pocket right there He doesn't need to pay Two boys five pounds Because of what road he's on
1: And he's on the very road
0: Where she lives anyway <laughs>
1: um, So uh, Let's see the, you know, you're definitely, it's like a clash of two cultures. They come from different worlds. Uh, the You know, the manners of speech, the accents sort of define characters a little bit. And certainly the, uh, James's father, I, I I don't really think he has a job. He's just like a lord or an earl or whatnot. Uh, he was a military man. Yeah, what do those guys do? Yeah. Just... He's just earling or lording. Um thing yeah uh, so but he is uh, he was obviously in the military there's this rich military history in his family but James wants to be an actor and, and he's actually um, he tells um, Haley's family that he's a friend of Haley's from drama school um, and that's why he's there to sort of visit her so he doesn't say that he's the boyfriend just right away in fact he there oh boy there are some cliches there where he uh, <laughs> pretends to be gay so he's not passing uh, himself off um, uh, or not revealing himself immediately as her boyfriend. Um, so it turns out that neither partners really told the their families about the other, um, and all these secrets sort of get revealed uh, by living uh, their partners' lives. It's that's kind of a nice play is that they're both fishes fish out of water, fishes fishes out of water, uh, in each other's homes. Um, she's in this very wealthy world uh, because James's father is uh, so well positioned in life. Uh, he thinks that uh, Haley's father was a soldier. Um, that's what she tells him. and uh, mm-hmm. that James and, and James's father thinks that Haley's a soldier because uh, he's under the impression that James is in sort of some sort of military school. So there's this big lie yeah. that James is telling his father and his family about that he's uh, not in drama school, whereas that's exactly where um, they met. Um, and James learns things about Haley too that she she did magic as a as a youth. They didn't know uh, uh, he didn't know that that was what her background was before our drama school. Um, and then you know, there's this moment where they they're staying in each other's rooms. Of course, uh, James gets put up in her room, and, and she gets put up, which are very different. She gets put up in his room, which is this <laughs> castle like atmosphere, and she has a very modest room in her house. Uh, so then uh by the middle of the film james's father's son learns that uh, the, the the rabbit comes out of the hat or whatnot that uh, Haley's at guildhall she's uh, learning drama and that's where um james is too uh, but they basically again the next day i think there's another i think jim jimmy you mentioned something about this in your notes on the show is that she leaves the house for a little while, but then, then all the trains are cancelled. And the same, exactly the same thing sort of happens at at, at James, with James down at her house. Um, so all the, can, the trains are cancelled and they, they have to stay yet another night um, in
0: each other's homes. Um, and this is I mean, where it's, it's, I... The, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's that, it's that idea of a kind of low budget filmmaking, isn't it? Where you, you you get the characters and you put them all in like a little sort of... A, uh, like a confined space and yeah. you get them to play it out and just like a bottle sort of scenario isn't it and here we've got two bottles two bottles yeah exactly yeah exactly so she's in a bottle and he's in a bottle but the question is you know, how many times can you leave a house because yeah. characters <laughs> exactly. just, just keep leaving the house and then having to come back there's snow oh least storm out the house again oh no there was more snow I'm going to storm out the house again oh no there's more snow You can only really kind of play that card so many times. Um, Yeah. You know, they play it two or three times, as many times as you can get away with, I think, in this film.
1: Yeah. And it's it's interesting to hear that you, uh, that the writer was a stand-up comic because I I mentioned to you earlier that um, there's some scenes that feel like they're just written for comics or comic actors to Mm. to do some vamping. You know, it's not like rich, rich dialogue and really uh, intense drama at any point. It's much more, you know, actors giving a chance to just do their thing on screen. Um so then there's the classic montage oh boy cliche squad is going to have a lot of work to do <laughs> James does spa time with the ladies of Haley's family and really, you know, becomes really one of the girls to a certain extent. And they're, I think they're, again, they're, this is so stereotypical, but they're under the impression that he's the gay friend, the gay best friend or something like that. Uh, meanwhile, uh, in the same kind of montage, it's like a double montage, isn't it? It's a lot of double. Double bottled up characters, <laughs> double montages. Haley sets up a Christmas tree and decorations in this mansion that hasn't been decorated for Christmas for years because James's mother has died and there's this sadness that has been gripping the house ever since um until a a dog gets shot i think that was great um (laughs) act two curtain basically peanut who is james's dog um gets shot by a gun-toting neighbor played by david bradley um and that's when he's been explicit oh haley has been explicitly told by fiona don't let the dog out um (laughs) but of course the dog gets out and gets shot uh kind of by accident by humorous accident um and then we learn, sort of, in this uh, sort of later, later going of the film, that Haley actually has a fiance named Steve. This guy is ripped; he's got great muscles. The kid, his, <laughs> the younger brothers love him. The family loves him. So James is just confused and very angry all at once because um, um, because she's got a boyfriend that she didn't tell him about. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Haley's sort of getting deeper into James's life and into her, her mother's his mother's things. Um, apparently, James and his mother had this connection of acting and, and being artists, um, and he never really connected to his father, who was more of a military background, so he's trying to sort of satisfy his father's dreams for him, but his mother's dreams were really to have weddings at this beautiful, um, I keep calling it a castle, but this beautiful country home, have concerts on the property, um, and um, Haley's sort of finding out about his mother and that relationship by going through all these things in the house where, again, forbidden rooms where she's not allowed to go. Um, But she also says, look, I've I've broken up with Steve. And then at the same time, she tells James that, like, Steve is sort of playing that they're still together, but they're not. And uh, it's about the same time where, um, oh, this was, I like this. Uh, (laughs) I did like this line. It's pretty bad. But uh, James tells her family, I'm not gay. I'm just a really good actor. (laughs) (laughs) One of the great bits in the film, I thought. Um, So on learning uh, that uh, uh, Haley has Steve earlier, James sort of leaves the house again. You're right. There's a lot of leaving of houses. Um, Both characters are kind of sad um, and sort of a lot of the past comes out. There's the Earl never really saw James act. um, So his father really never um, supported him in that endeavor. Um, and that uh, James's father spends every Christmas Eve at the dead mother's grave. And that's, I think, why he was gone when the dog got shot. Um... Haley, I think she tries to leave again. Boy, there's a lot of leaving. You're right, Jimmy. Uh, she tries <laughs> to like, leave. It's like the only
0: action you can have, isn't it? Like, <laughs> I'm stuck in this house, so I'll leave. That's that's the thing I can yeah. do. Well, let's do it again. Do it again.
1: That's right. You can leave a location, but you can never go to another location because there is no other location. <laughs>
0: yeah, we, couldn't, uh, we couldn't pay for any others. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's great. I mean, I, it's economical. I got to say that. But um, <laughs> she leaves. The storm it sort of gets rough again, and she's forgotten her in, her inhaler. She's asthmatic. Um and the Earl needs to go out and fetch her. Um, and he knows that she's not a soldier at this point because soldiers don't use inhalers or something like that. They would never um, uh, accept yeah, someone to, probably actually. Yeah, to do her thing because she's uh, got asthma. Uh, peanut has recovered, he helps to find her, even though he's been shot. He's Fortunately, he's not been killed. There's some question for a little while because he disappears, but he comes back with a little uh, bandage on his head. Head bandage and yeah. no grudge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then uh, James has uh, what's it? Haley's family. Um, oh, that's right. He's using the landline, right? So he forgets a phone at 1.2 or it's... Oh, yeah, he's... That's right. He leaves... He's using uh, uh, Haley's family's landline uh, because he's forgotten his cell phone. So there's another cell phone again. So this is <laughs> yeah. why this film is sort of proving my theory a little bit. Um, so that um, he has to go back to her family's house and she at the same time as she's going back to him. So they're really or his house. So they're sort of having these parallel experiences as well. Um we ultimately learn that James lost his mother on Christmas Eve, so that's part of your, it makes the holiday extra um, difficult for him. Um, and uh, they kind of each go in the opposite direction, again, via very strange transportation is what I wrote down. Um, because uh, her family has a food truck. Uh-oh, Jim, you're going to talk about the... <laughs> cliche squad for that too I think yeah um, oh my goodness. they're in a food truck um going I get I can't remember the directions exactly well going towards his castle basically and um and James is along for the ride and then there's a trailer that uh is at the castle uh, it's got a tractor and a trailer combo that uh, turns out um James's grandfather lives on the property he's the one who shot peanut by accident <laughs> um, and they the trailer doesn't make it but the ice cream truck uh, and the whole family sort of arrive at the the wonderful um, uh, countryside mansion of James's family, and they all re- they finally re- reunite. Especially uh, James and Haley get back together in the ice cream truck, and all is sort of forgiven and explained. And they're very much in love. Um, And of course, I don't know how they did this, but that last shot shows you that the tractor trailer did make the 200 kilometer ride back down, even though it wasn't working before (laughs) and the ice cream truck too, in time to have, uh, basically it looked like Christmas dinner at the Haley's family's house with everyone together, everyone really getting along and um, living happily ever after.
0: Ah, big sigh of relief. (sighs) (laughs)
1: That was hard. I didn't feel like I did a very good job because that was really hard for me.
0: Do you mean hard like painful? <laughs>
1: no. I mean, I was looking for the important things in the film, and I just feel like there wasn't Oh, a that's where this. you went wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it was just, it was it's Christmas candy. You're supposed to just enjoy it. And there were some things that I really thought were clever, and, and I smiled a little bit. I was just very glad that it was an hour and 35 minutes. It was, it was definitely the right length. It didn't need to be any longer than that. Yeah. Um, and there were, I liked some of those moments of coming to know each other by being apart from one another. I'm sure this has been done in films before, but I think that was the best part is that they're each kind of experiencing the other's life and learning things that they didn't know. Cause my impression was they had only been together for a couple of months, really. I mean, maybe they'd started school together that fall. And then by Christmas, they were really, really into each other, um, so they didn't feel like they were like long-term uh, romantic partners. It felt kind of fresh, um, which made yeah. it nice. And then I just, it was kind of interesting that they learned about each other by being alone with the other's family. So I, I like that. And the ruse to get them to each other's place, it makes sense. It's not believable. Yeah, it's but cute. It makes sense. Yeah, it's
0: cute. I mean, it's it's another um, of the plot points which is undermined by having a mobile phone. I, I can't imagine two young people these days dating for a couple of months without doing a little bit of cyber stalking. Yeah. And at least, you know, you would check out each other's Instagram or something. It would be yeah. pretty difficult to keep, you know, your engagement or the fact that you are a peer of the realm um, secret completely. Yeah. Um, I I agree that there were some elements that I enjoyed in this film. There were quite a few laughs. There was um, a scene where they're waiting at the train station and the electronic board... um, gradually cancels every train yeah. one by one mm-hmm. my children really go at that because that's their like that's their life every morning when they go to school <laughs> and um when they're out driving the, the ice cream van and, yeah. and like the dad says oh you know, don't worry we'll be fine i've modified the van and he's just strapped like a tea tray to the front of it which falls off immediately that's right uh, yeah it's, it's some you know, it's good fun gags. gags and um you know off the characters i quite enjoy the character of the flirty aunt um, oh, yes. Which is uh, played by Natalie Camedia, who I think is also like a UK soap actor. Yeah, I think she was also she was in um, Strictly Come Dancing in this country a few years oh. ago as well. And that's but, Hale, um, Haley's yeah, aunt, to be to be clear. That's right, Haley's example. aunt. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and if I, mean, I think there are a few underexplored characters in this film, uh, when you know, Haley makes this you know, slightly inexplicable decision that she's. You know, she's been told that the study is out of bounds so she decides to go into the study and take all the Christmas yeah. decorations out and throw them all at, all over the house. I think she's supposed to be a bit drunk because she and the housekeeper are like drinking wine yeah. aren't they first thing in the morning that's right and this notion of the like the housekeeper who's you know sort of very quiet and sensible but actually you know completely drunk by ten o'clock in the morning yeah. I think that's you know, quite an amusing character but utterly underexplored yeah. by the by the story my my yeah. kind of impression of this um i I think you know, it's got that low-budget filmmaking trope, isn't it, of cramming all the characters together, um, and it somehow it felt like it needed to become a farce. Mm. So, like, there needed to be one discovery that will pile up on another discovery, on top of another, on top of another, sure. so that you know that so everyone would think that um, that James was gay, and then you know then the, the the fiance would turn up, but then you know maybe the fiance actually is bisexual, and so then oh no, there's another layer of complication. Yeah. And then they just, just kind of keep piling them up on top of each other. And I think that's when it would work. But instead, um, the story kind of it just it politely resolves each issue in turn. Mm-hmm. So I, the thing it made me think of, it's a little bit like having a limited amount of RAM in your computer. So you can't open a new application until you've closed the old mm. one. So each time a problem comes up, it just kind of it, it gets resolved and thrown away. So like, um, like things like with Steve, the, the the ripped fiance. Yeah. You know, he turns up and he's kind of um, yeah, he's this perfect suitor, the, the perfect um, husband. And then after James leaves, he apparently apologizes off screen and just disappears, doesn't appear for the rest of the film. That's right. Cool. The dog gets shot. Yeah. Oh, it's dead. Oh, but no, it's not. It's yeah. all right. It's fine. You know, there's a drunk housekeeper. It gets forgotten about. There's a flirty aunt. Well, we forget about her. You know, th- yeah. The, the study is completely out of bounds. But oh, no, we've forgiven you for that. You know, the phone, oh, I've lost it. Oh, but here's a landline, so it's no problem. Yeah. Well, you know, is James it, is gay. Oh, no, but he's not. It's all right. Yeah, so all, t- but, you know, all the tension is gone because that's uh, – Yeah, I absolutely. Exactly. The, so yeah. e- each each kind of problem is like crossed off just too soon. Yeah. Why not pile them all up on top of each other? It reminds me like, um, say, of like an old episode of Frasier, which used to do this really well. They get a whole bunch of problems and then just multiply them by each other. Yeah. Uh, to to form this you know enormous fast where you know every little move has a big sort of uh, big um you know, worry behind it or high stakes, yeah. whereas here everything um is you know resolved too easily um which I just thought it that was like a pretty easy fix, and it's a shame that. Um, No one spotted that before they shot. Yeah, well, I I wonder, is this a film or is this just sort of like an extended television piece? Yeah, that's just what it feels like, isn't it?
1: And I I think that makes a big, I think there's a big difference there. Yeah, because I I don't know what the release is like. Is it just Amazon Prime? I don't, I I imagine this is not ever going to be in a theatre. Um, no. it, th- it just felt like a, it felt like a, a, a commodity kind of. They just uh, made something, popped it up on, um, on Amazon. They'll make their money somehow. It's not. I mean, it couldn't have been super expensive to make. So, um, I, I don't see it like becoming a holiday classic or anything like that. I don't think it, it doesn't have a lot of that piling up of problems because I don't think it's that kind of product. I think it's just. Uh, just gonna kind of, you know,
0: twenty twenty-two this Christmas and it'll probably disappear. So it's kind of a thrill. <laughs> it's a piece shame, it. isn't yeah. it? Because there are clearly some talented people involved, yeah. but yeah, I agree. It's just gets just not quite there. I have got one question for you. Do you think is there, is there any part of this film that might possibly trouble the cliche squad? Cliche squad. <laughs>
1: I know you have a list I, my feeling, I think the Cliché Squad already works too hard that's why I didn't want to mention anything but yes
0: put the call uh, I think the Cliché Squad are going to have to form like an entire new division I think they're already recruiting staff I did start making a list. I mean, you're exactly right. Okay, yeah. So um That's bullet pointed out. I would just... Like this this cliche of having this kind of this, you know, this secret hidden wealth. Oh, actually, I live in a castle, but I never told you. This idea of, of having an ice cream van as the symbol of like working class grit and enterprise. Yeah. You know, I feel like I've seen that so many times. It's like, well, if you want. To... Is it ice cream, though? Because I, th- I thought he had like turkeys and ducks and chickens. I thought he was de-
1: like a. Um... Well, I think
0: the idea is, it I mean, it's it's um, in appearance. It's definitely an ice cream yeah, van yeah. and it's plastered with adverts. For ice creams on the inside, yeah. but I think the idea being, oh, it's Christmas, so he's oh, he's okay. like, you know, he's being plucky and working class and independent and enterprising. He does and he's sell selling, a young he's kid. selling frozen chickens.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think he sells a young kid some ice cream at the train station when he's waiting for. Right. Yeah. yeah, okay, <laughs> okay, so. okay, God, yeah, all right,
0: more. Um, yeah, you know, this idea of yeah, I like you know that the the secret perfect fiance. You know, it's like you go home and everything is perfect, and suddenly no. oh, yeah. you're engaged. <laughs> um, you know, the idea of this cold father who lost his wife and packed her things away—it's yep. you know, so symbolic. I, you know. And even this idea of this kind of um, this notion that you go to the countryside and the first person you meet is like some old bumpkin in an yeah. overcoat with a shotgun because <laughs> that's what people in the countryside are like. Yeah, you'll always meet one of them. It's, oh, the list kind of goes on and on, doesn't it? Does. it? It's um.
1: a, a little bit of menace, though. That's what the countryside, uh, the bumpkin with the shotgun, is. Is the
0: uh, that touch
1: of menace? It's you know, it could touch be a nice character, but again, he, that's a character who is definitely underdeveloped. And then is all all of a sudden, oh, it's James's grandfather, and his son don't get <laughs> yes, along. Exactly. His son lives in the mansion there, and he's you know, you feel like he's just in a, living in a shack uh, <laughs> and hunting squirrels
0: and things to survive. But uh, yeah. um, oh, I hate to come down quite so hard there is an interesting notion actually which is this film really understands um that class you know is is what divides british society yeah rather than race because you know there, there are a number of actors of color in this movie mm-hmm. and you know and it's utterly you know not explored because the, the film recognizes that class trumps race in your explanation of how UK society works. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really explore this notion of class particularly. And at the end, you know, the posh people and the working class people get together yeah. for a nice, cosy Christmas, and mm-hmm. it's, you know, it, it's not really kind of explored. But it, it, it is notionally there as a kind of underlying theme. So they have, you know, they've, they've thought about yeah. that if they haven't been able to approach it properly it's a little bit undermined
1: early on because when Haley first arrives at James's house she's mistaken for someone applying to be the house cleaner or something like that mm. right um, yeah and Haley's mixed race or black I think and it's uh it's yeah I think it sort of undermines that a little bit but I guess they're trying to make it believable that they're not expecting her number one. And that maybe she is applying for this job, but I think it was a
0: housekeeper or a cook or something like that. I
1: forget exactly.
0: So, yeah, or clean or something. like that. Although, like when the, the when the actual girl turns up to be the cleaner, she is white. She's isn't white. She is white. Yes. Yeah. Yep. You know, and again, actually, I felt like that was you know you've introduced another little character there. Oh, couldn't we have you know couldn't she be part of the mix? Yeah. Um, you know, it feels like there's just like a long list of of um, missed opportunities. It's like, you know, there could have been another three or four drafts when you could have stitched all this together and sure. it could have, like, somehow swirled into a fugue, um, everything kind of coming to a head. Um, so maybe that wasn't the feel they wanted to go for. Uh, yeah, and
1: I, I think I would ask that of you exactly. Like, do you do you think that the, the, the intention at any time was to make this a, like, a work of art, a great picture, or were they just thinking holiday films are going to sell, we can get this on Amazon, we're going to stitch something together and and push it that way.
0: I wonder if if you are a TV director with 270 episodes behind you, you want your debut feature to really be special, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, you've already got an idea of where to put the camera and what to say to actors. Yeah. Um I I don't know. I think I mean wouldn't you say this is your experience whenever you make something? Um your original hope is that it might turn out to be Citizen Kane. I think surely yeah. everybody th- feels this. And I don't know whether it's just that they ran out of time or money or ingenuity, but yeah. um yeah, it's a bit of a miss. Interesting that, despite it being you know really fairly weak, um, Amazon have presented this very strongly as their UK Christmas offering in this country. Oh. So yeah, it's been it's been you know heavily um, heavily promoted here. Oh, you guys are lucky. <laughs> a gift just for you from Amazon. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Jeff Bezos. Right, let's 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 have a break. Um, we'll have some warming mulled wine and a mince pie and we'll, we'll come back uh, with a entirely different Christmas film, 1946's It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs>
1: The listener knows that we have uh, some friends um, from the Israeli porn bot industry. (laughs) (laughs) That guy's pretty pretty consistent. Yes, yes. Listeners. You can say, when you say our listener, that means we're talking directly to one person, but we actually have listeners. So our regular (laughs) listeners know about our relationship with the Israeli porn bots. and I thought I should reach out to them and uh, thank them for their service, (laughs) and also to see if they wanted to sponsor us. Uh, Anyone who's listening to the podcast knows we are looking for sponsors, so I did uh, my due diligence and wrote to them. Um, Now, we know that their ISP, is it an ISP? Internet service provider, something like that. It's related to an Israeli account, and that's why we call them the Israeli porn bots. But um, they could be contact- contacting us from anywhere, right? I mean, like ISPs these days, anywhere
0: or, outside of the official legal jurisdiction of the United States. Yes,
1: yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, wherever they're from, they write with kind of an artificial intelligence accent, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna end up reading their letter back, their response. Oh, great! Um, but it's gonna sound a little stilted for sure. Um, there have been a lot of articles about AI getting so much better, um, but uh, the writing's not, <laughs> not for good for these guys. Exactly. Um, so bear with me as I read their um, reply. Um, but I really wanted to bring you and our listeners uh, their <laughs> message uh, in their own words. So here you go. So remember, this is uh, artificial <laughs> intelligence. Dear Mr. Tutu Real Podcaster, <laughs> thank you for stretching out to us currently. <laughs> Yes, we are interested in forging sponsorship with you, handsome, sexual-identifying gentlemen. From our collections, we know you as Hot for Teacher, and we have various scholastic and extracurricular opportunities for great pooders such as yourselves. So I think that the intelligence is amazing, because we've talked about Hot for
0: Teacher far
1: too many times.
0: Far too many times. To- yeah, they've picked up on so they're that. Definitely, yeah. They're definitely listening
1: in. Um Products and services now coming to live on worldly wide web are feature more realistic sounds and experiences, private (laughs) video chat rooms with one-on-one bot access, bot and bot double trouble rooms, I don't know what that is, uh, your bot buddy therapy sessions. Oh my God. Infinite expanse interactive video and photo galleries. Virtual reality. That's VR, right? Virtual reality. Yeah, um, right. Bot exploration and discovery safe space. Digital <laughs> phone sex version 5.0 and online watercolor painting classes. <laughs> Go figure.
0: These guys are really into their technologies. They're good. They're good. Full service. Um,
1: <laughs> in answer to your intense curiosity, it's true, I have been writing them a lot, an awful lot. Um, we want to make, good, good to make contact with
0: your friends, exactly. isn't it? Yeah.
1: We want to make you notice that we are real active peoples. As <laughs> well what is, as we like to communication, Israeli <laughs> porn bots equal to is really good porn bots. <laughs> I think that's like a tagline for them or like one of their
0: mottos. Um, that's, that's, like, that's like an AI-generated AI pun. That's amazing. It's great, isn't it? I love these guys. That's I good. I love the Israeli porn bots. <laughs> um, we are not only most exclusive
1: lovers, but most inclusive one, too. B- br- it says brining, but I think it's bringing. Bringing our <laughs> binary and non-binary experience to extraordinary love service.
0: <laughs> I thought that was
1: good. Um, yeah. This is definitely one of their, uh, like, taglines or mottos, I guess. Um, it says, Israeli porn bots for the special relationship in all of us. Visit with <laughs> us at israelpornbot.sex. <laughs> so that's, this, that's the website that they want you to use. That's, that's is, a catchy URL, it isn't it? it? Is, that's yeah. catchy. Is well, I'm glad they got the .dot sex thing. That's good. Isrealpornbot.sex. Uh, then I loved this at the end. Happy Hanukkah, poodcasters. Or if you celebrate ecstasy of live-born Christ, I think that's Christmas, right? Uh, then marry that too, and all other holidays joyous. That was. I mean, that's a lovely
0: letter. So. There is a lovely letter. Google Translate is getting really good now, it, it, yeah. isn't it?
1: Yes, and the artificial <laughs> intelligence is getting very good. So I'll keep this uh,
0: this contact
1: <laughs> open, and we'll uh, continue to, to contact them and see uh, see if we
0: can develop that special relationship. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my only slight worry is that they are going to start dictating what films we review. Back from our brief trip to Tel Aviv, uh, uh, now back to the U.S., we're going to talk about It's a Wonderful Life, 1946, Frank Capra film. Now, uh, I had seen this once before, I Ooh. think, when I was a teenager. Um, and I was kind of aware that it was a Christmas classic, and I didn't particularly like it at the time. I mm-hmm. remember being a bit nonplussed. Yeah. Um, enjoyed it an awful lot more this time. How many times do you think you've seen this film? Oof. OK, well, that that's a great question that
1: I can't really answer because like you, I saw it in bits and pieces because it's always on at Christmas. So I'd probably uh. seen parts of it 20 or 30 times at least Whoa. Um, and never sat down. But then I was probably early 20s when I sat down and watched the full film and loved it from the very first time. And then it sort of became a Christmas tradition in our family to this, you know, it's just always on. So it's easy to watch. Mm. Um so I'm gonna say that I've seen the full film probably around twenty times, but uh, wow
0: okay wow God, yeah. that's that's ten <clears throat> times as many times as I have so I've yeah. seen it, it's all the way through twice now, yeah, my second viewing so it originally um started life as a short story yeah. um so it's kind of yeah a bit of a long complicated genesis of this movie so uh in November th- nineteen thirty nine it was published um by philip van Doren Stern so he was a um most famous as a U.S. Civil War historian. Um, he spent quite a long time writing this, this short story, 4,000 words, called The Greatest Gift. He tried to find a publisher for it um, and couldn't. Uh, so in the end, he self-published. He printed up 200 copies of this short story and he sent it out with Christmas cards to yeah. friends and family. Yep. Um, you can read the story online now, actually. It's easily available. It's on the, the tour um, website who are kind of fantasy publishers, um, so you can read it online. It's you know a very short, easy to read little short story, with you know quite a lot in common with the film, but also quite a lot that is different. So of these two hundred copies that sent out to friends, one of them found their way into, and it's not entirely clear whether it was um, Cary Grant received it or Cary Grant's producer mm-hmm. um, David Hempstead. Um, but it was uh, originally snipped, up, snapped up as a as a potential project for Cary Grant. Um, and so um, David Hempstead spent quite a lot of money developing it Turning it into a script Eventually Cary Grant um, lost interest And the idea was sold to Frank Capra For supposedly $50,000 um, So uh, he, uh, Frank Capra then So uh, yeah, Italian-born American film director yeah. um, Previously directed It Happened One Night Mr. Deeds Goes to Town A whole bunch of movies um, <clears throat> Uh, he, his career was very slightly on the wane at this point point. Um, and uh, he picked the story up to try and kind of revive uh, his uh, fortunes And then it was worked on by a whole bunch of writers yep. um, So Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich Who are a husband and wife team um, They wrote Father of the Bride And Seven Brides for Seven Brothers They worked on the story with Capra um, They ended up getting a writer credit But also it was uh, co-written by Joe Swirling who um, wrote *Pennies from Heaven*? And he wrote *Guys and Dolls*, the book for that as well. Um, he does get an additional scenes or additional story credit, something like that. Also, yeah. there was contributions by Michael Wilson, who later wrote yeah. B- uh, *Bridge on the River Kwai* and *Lawrence of Arabia*. And apparently, there was um, some polish by Dorothy Parker, oh, who I never knew actually. Dorothy Parker apparently wrote the script for *A Star Is Born*. Really? Oh, wow! Um, so whole, the original, yeah, so yeah, a whole, okay. yeah. Absolutely. A whole bunch of people um, had their fingers in this pie. Um, If you read the interviews online, apparently it was a very unpleasant um, development period. Mm -hmm. Uh, Capra apparently had different teams of writers working against each other. Um, He wasn't telling people um, that uh, somebody else is also working on the script and then he would cherry pick some bits of that and then ditch somebody else's script. And uh, Apparently Joe Swirling never spoke to Frank Capra again after being uh, kicked off this project. So it was all a bit... um,
1: uh, 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 uh a bit tricky. Yeah, I was going to I was going to say that um I think when he bought the rights there were already two or three drafts as well. So yeah, he, a, he had what existing, by Clifford Odette? Yeah, yes. Clifford Odette was in on there too. Yeah, so I mean he had all these drafts and then he ends up getting even more and more help and normally when I see a lot of writers on a project I think, oh god, you just know immediately it's probably not going to be very good but it's In one of the interviews I saw, it looked like Capra was really picking and choosing some of the best stuff from each of these great writers and eventually it sounds like he sort of gets kind of the biggest writing credit by the end, um, and he manages to,
0: to take that chaos and turn it into a, a classic. You know, it is largely cohesive, isn't it? Despite yeah. having so many people contributing to the script, it yeah. is, does you know, largely feel like a single unified project. So. Uh, so the story of the film, if you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it twenty times, um, it's a black and white film, um, heartwarming family drama. Opens with a conversation between the stars, literally the stars, not yep. not the film stars, but like you know the constellations up in the sky. Yep. Um, so this is like a you know early special effects version of Voices from Heaven. Um, God and the angels are looking down on Earth, um, and uh, they select uh, Clarence. A new angel who doesn't have his wings yet to go down to Earth to help George Bailey, uh, who is the character played by James Stewart, because um, tonight he's really going to need some help from the heavens. Yeah. And let us I, I was going to yeah. say, just
1: let's be clear that these angels talking are tiny little light bulbs being turned mm-hmm. on and off uh, to the <laughs> cadence of their dialogue. Um, it is low tech. It's early special effects, but it's it's not the kind of thing where if
0: you see that as the first thing, you're probably not going to watch the movie just because it's it's
1: 80 years old now.
0: Um, but and also it's like a two or three minute scene, isn't it? Yeah. These lights just kind of flickering on and off as well. It's not like it's it's not 10 <laughs> seconds. Yeah, it's a long bit of like it's a little radio play set in heaven with no visuals accompanying yeah. it. Um, so so Clarence um, has the homework. Of uh, or has the, he has the task of going down to help George Bailey, but before yeah. he has to do his homework, yeah. uh, which is actually the large, larger part of the whole movie, which yeah. is that he has to review the whole of George Bailey's life before he goes down to help him. So, <clears throat> the first two thirds of the film are like a little precy of James Stewart's life. Um, as a young boy, he saves his brother from drowning. Um, he works in a, a drugstore, and he sh- sh- saves Mister Gower, who's the pharmacist, from poisoning a prescription. Um, and as he becomes like a teenager and then an adult, his plan is to you know go to the go to college and tour the world. Um, but uh, every time he tries to leave uh, the small town Bedford Falls where he lives, he's always kind of thwarted. His dad runs a, like a local Buildings and Loans bank, and then um, just as uh george is about to leave town his father dies suddenly and uh, he ends up having to take over the bank um he marries a local girl uh mary um works in the bank for many years he saves the bank from a bank run he's constantly um harassed by a local landowner henry potter who's like the local um the local bad guy who is uh, squeezing his tenants of rent with, with slum housing while uh, George is providing loans for people to build their own homes, and then eventually, after all the ups and downs of his young life, um, he's established in the bank. The bank uh, inspector, or the bank examiner, arrives like on Christmas Eve to inspect the books. And uh, George's uncle, Uncle Billy, who's an absent-minded old uh, old codger, accidentally loses eight thousand dollars because he's tucked it into a newspaper. Uh, which he ends up accidentally giving to Henry Potter on the day of the bank examiner. He has no idea where this $8,000 uh, is. I did a little calculation actually using the inflation calculator okay. and that's almost exactly a quarter of a million dollars Oof. today.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: Um, so this is an enormous sum of cash that he has lost and he has no idea where it is. Um, and for George, this is you know a disaster. This is going to send the bank under. It's probably going to send him to prison uh, because uh, it's going to look like someone has embezzled it and it's probably going to be George who takes the blame. Um, so things are looking really bad. The only hope that he has to hang on to is that he has an insurance policy, a life insurance policy for $15,000. So his desperate plan is to throw himself off a bridge, commit suicide, and that way his wife can get the insurance money, save the bank and all the loans on the, the homeowners that uh, uh, that he's backing. And it's only now about two thirds of the way through the film that George about to throw himself off the bat, of the, the, the bridge meets Clarence. So Clarence, the angel, throws himself off a bridge, forcing uh, George to jump in after him and rescue him. And uh, Clarence tells him, well, you know, I know you're in a terrible state. I've come to I've come to show you that really you should be grateful because your life is great and you shouldn't throw it away. Um. And uh, George says in this kind of passing moment, he says, oh, I wish I'd never been born. And so Clarence focuses on that and says, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I can show you what would have happened if you never had been born. So the the final third of the movie is um, George exploring this parallel universe version of Bedford Falls um, where uh, the whole town has gone to pot because he was never born. Um, So it means that uh, his wife, Mary, is now a spinster. She never got married. His brother, who went on to be a war hero, is dead because he never got rescued from drowning. Mr Gower, the pharmacist, uh, went to jail and he's an outcast because he did end up poisoning somebody with a prescription. And the whole town is just uh, degenerate because it's all run uh, by Henry Potter. And the whole place uh, has gone to you know it's gone to a seed it's uh, i mean i love the, the portrayal of, of the, the bad the evil bedford falls it really reminds me of um back to the future part 2 mm-hmm. you know, which clearly borrows very heavily from this film yeah it's pottersville and, uh, pottersville yeah exactly yeah. It's pottersville it's well, it's full of um Zin. it's full of like uh, you yeah, know music <laughs> venues and uh Dance and halls. girly shows <laughs> and, and and my favorite is um when uh James Stewart, when George is like finally despairing of how terrible Pottersville is, you can see there's a sign behind him for a store which says, Musical Instruments of All Kinds. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the idea that, you know, you know your town has written as a hit rock bottom when you can buy a banjo in a store there. <laughs> oh, my God. How, how bad can things get? Um, so George uh, realises, you know, well, maybe life isn't so bad then. Maybe you know, maybe I should be grateful and I should be glad that I'm alive. Um, Clarence magics him back to the the original uh, dimension that he came from, and he has a tearful reunion with his family. And uh, when he gets back home, he discovers that everyone in the town has pulled together to find the money that George lost from the bank. So they've all reached down the back of the sofa and emptied out their purses and the boxes under the bed. And they've all come with little scrumpled up notes and coins and uh, they throw it into this big basket and the town is going to come back together to save George. And the final uh, kiss off is um, this kind of this uh, simple notion that no man is, um, that no man is a failure who has friends. That's what Clarence has written in a little dedication of a book that he gives to to George before he disappears forever. And uh, you're left with this kind of this heartwarming notion of community and belonging of, uh, of uh, community triumphing over selfishness um, and uh, this uh, sort of happy uh, Christmas scene where everyone sings uh, and uh, it's a sort of very uplifting final moment. Um, my children complained bitterly that this wasn't nearly enough of a Christmas film because not enough of the scenes happened at Christmas and I did feel at the end that I can see why it gets weird out at Christmas and the last last bit of the film does happen at Christmas but mm-hmm. The first half of the film, they were slightly nonplussed about why it was a Christmas film at all. Does it feel Christmassy to you or uh, do you think that's that's you know just an easy bit of packaging? A humbug.
1: <laughs> I, I'm not a big Christmas fan. It has just the right amount of Christmas. And, it you know, it's uh, the, the climax is all Christmas. The all the the bad stuff and all the great stuff happens um, on Christmas Eve. So I think it. I mean, it is a Christmas film, and uh, I think it's just enough Christmas. I'm going to disagree with your children. (laughs) Yeah, they don't know
0: what they're talking
1: about. Yeah. Um, But, no, they've got a good point because you're seeing his whole life. There's plenty of stuff that happens um – uh, as people are graduating from high school, their weddings and uh, and uh, you know graduations and things like that. it's got all those uh, scenes and um, you've got this guy who's just stuck in town and you, we always have, we have this expression like every day is Christmas and you know honestly every day is not Christmas, especially if you're stuck in the small town where you were born and and grew up and were trying to get out of so um I think it what it does is it sort of makes Christmas, Great, I think, in a sense, like it's that one special day and it it boils down his whole life and there's a lot of great stuff that that happens in it that he doesn't recognize as being great. Um, But then he's got this chance to to see his life or or see his town without him. Um, and then I think that makes Christmas extra special. So I'm I, again I'm gonna say it's just the right amount of Christmas, and I think all the important stuff happens around community getting together at that time of year. So I think it's it's you know there's not it's not commercial. It's not about people buying each other presents all the time or having fantastic relationships that happen because they uh, accidentally ended up at each other's house for Christmas or anything like that. It's just the right amount of Christmas where he finally gets his his, his best day of life, and it's on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve.
0: I and mean, it's all about kind of community isn't it and collectivism it's nice to see collectivism on screen yes. given that like you know, the underlying theme of western cinema for the last 40 years has been about yes. self-determination and self-realization yeah um and but this this is sort a of film which was made you know just bouncing out of the second world war so the second world war had just happened and there was still like a mood of um you know sacrifice and yep. uh, the greater good yep and um you know, the opposite of selfishness the defeat of selfishness through community there are some real kind of emotional sk- extremes in this film yep. I mean, there's some you know proper real joyful scenes there's an early scene where um, george meets uh, mary who he, who he marries by who's uh, donna reed yep. uh, who we saw earlier in the year and they were expendable wasn't we she we did yes um, so, uh, She's she's great screen presence yeah. um and there's this you know joyous scene um they go to a dance together and the early part of the scene, everybody is crammed into this tiny space. Cause, you know, the film is, is shot in like 1.33 3 to 1. It's like it's little academy ratio box shaped screen. Yeah. And all the characters like squeezed into this screen so they can all get their faces on screen at once. And everybody's jostling around. And it's only later that the, car- the, the camera pulls back and you see all these young people dancing on this kind of dancing competition. And then you have the gag that they're dancing on a dance floor, which um, is suspended mechanically over a swimming pool. And uh, the, the the jealous boy who wishes he was dancing with Mary presses the button to open up the swimming pool, and everybody gradually falls in one by one. It's you know, it's a you yeah. know, it's a great gag, lots of fun. Um, you know, it's a real high. And in the same way that the the um the scene shortly before George deciding to take his own life, you know, it's really it's uncomfortably long and very um traumatizing it's like it him, him losing his temper with his family yeah. getting cross at the kids yeah. you're utterly desperate he's you know on the verge of tears everything is terrible um they you know, they're not afraid of, of having these you know real proper emotional extremes yep and i think one of the reasons it works so well is because it's james stewart you know who can do all these things you know credibly and approachably and uh, you warm to him either way i think this film absolutely lives and dies on its leads and you know, James Stewart, Donna Reed, just so watchable, yeah. so fantastic. The ca- the casting throughout, and I think Capper says that
1: too, you know, there's this old, uh, I suppose, uh, myth that casting is everything, but I think it's true, proven by this film. I mean, the casting is so good throughout all the parts, not just the leads, but um, all the supporting actors are fantastic. And I think when you've got that and a, and a decent script, it just really brings it to life and makes it a great film. So I I, I agree with you on Jimmy Stewart. Um and there's a lot of great filmmaking in this too, that I think is overlooked because people think of this as sort of a corny Christmas movie. So it's not, you know, it doesn't, I don't think it gets its uh, due recognition in terms of just being a great film. And I, I want to go to that scene where you were talking about in the, um, in the gymnasium, um, there's this wonderful bit where the, the camera just sort of sits still at first where they're – I think they're getting drinks at the table. And it's interesting to see all these different people come into the camera. Yeah. Um, so there's, the camera does not move. It's set. But you're int- introduced to a bunch of uh, other characters. Uh, they're all sort of dressed up in, in tuxes for this event. Um, and people are coming in and out of that scene, and it's crowded. It's a really interesting use of the camera because there are like five or six people at one time just in this one frame, jammed in. And then it sets up the next scene because you see Donna Reed. It's uh, Donna Reed's uh, Mary's um, older brother comes over. He's going to introduce or reintroduce George to Mary. And after seeing all these these tight scenes, all of a sudden you see Donna Reed from a distance, and then you see her close up because she and and George, um, uh, played by James Stewart, uh, recognize each other. And it's just it's a it's a great setup of going from this really crowded intimate moment to this Mm -hmm. sort of wider scene where you see them far apart and then they end up um, getting closer and they start dancing uh, in that great dance scene um, afterwards. So there's a lot of filmmaking that mixes these like quiet moments and close ups. A lot of it is a lot of the film is done in 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 close ups and there's a lot of camera closeness. Um, And I think it's, it's you see the acting you know and you've got great actors and they're doing their parts really well. So it's it's just Great. Um, filmmaking in that way I've seen it once in color and it was terrible oh it just, wow it, ruined. it had been colorized um and I saw it once and it just it did not feel the same at all um uh, so and the, and you know that's kind of a turnoff for a lot of people because some people just don't want to see black and white films anymore but um so for some reasons this is sort of um seen as kind of a I think just capricorn you know a lot of his films are very optimistic and and like intentionally uplifting. Um, but
0: I think as a result, it's overlooked as as being just a really well made film. Yeah. Talking of character actors, I've uh, got to mention Lionel Barrymore who plays yeah. Potter. Oh
1: yeah.
0: Um, I, as I was watching his scenes, I just kept thinking of Elon Musk. Actually, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> this yeah. incredibly wealthy man who's using his wealth to bully all those around yeah. him. Yeah. It's you know it's a it feel this film feels more relevant now than it you know than it in 1946. Yeah. Thank you. We thank have you have not so moved much. On. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that because. um Again,
1: I've seen this film so many times, but I got to see it. I haven't seen it in probably three or four years. Um, and I saw it with totally new eyes and lighted like the housing crises and the banking crises happening in this country. Um, and the politics of this film really stood out for me this time around because Lionel Barrymore yeah. is just—you know—it's just the politics of wealthy landowners uh, and a business class just trying to take over or eliminate this this building and loan company. Um, so it's really the big man just trying to gobble it up. And and, and at one point uh, when he's talking to to George Bailey. Um, Potter, played by Lionel Barrymore, you know he says the quiet parts out loud where he, he just wants to kill them. He's, he's on the board of the <laughs> bank and loan, but he wants to kill it or at least just control it. And he says it straight up. And I mean, the, the politics of this film are, it's FDR era, you know, It's um and you're ah. absolutely right to talk about, you know, the collective versus the individual. And One thing I really love about this film that occurred to me or reoccurred to me again um, was just this idea of a strong individual. You've got strong individuals like uh, George Bailey, um, but working in this collectivist Environment and that it—it's just such an excellent theme from the from the the New Deal era, from the Franklin Del, Delano Roosevelt era. Um, and I never thought of this really as a an, such an overtly political film, but because of what I'm seeing in the world right now, and I hadn't seen it in a few years, um, I just saw it with totally new eyes, and I loved it even more this time. And. I think you're right about a lot of the emotions. Like this is a film where I'm definitely crying a bunch. I'm laughing a bunch and then I'm laughing (laughs) and crying a bunch. And sometimes I'm (laughs) seething with leftist anger as well. Um, It's just a film that is, it does pack a lot of emotional punch. And I think that's why it is a classic. I think that's why people love it so much because it does,
0: it makes you feel things. I do have this slight question. I think, um, I think Clarence the angel um, the way he approaches his problem, and it 's you know it 's just the same in the short story um he 's presented with this problem, which is that George wants to end his life um and the problem that he tries to solve is um you know not the problem that he 's been presented so if it, if the story was going to make any sense, Clarence would show um George what the town would look like after he died, and yeah. he'd take him to kind of five years in the future and say, Oh well, look, you know that um The whole town's gone to pot now because you're not here. You know, your family's unhappy because you're not here. Um, But instead, he he solves completely the wrong problem, which is he says, well, what if you'd never existed? Yeah. And if the fact that George were, if George were to take his own life, that would not undo all the good deeds that he'd done up until that moment. That's right. Um, So it's, it's, so that kind of, um, I can understand why there's a, it's much more fun. Yeah to do the problem this way around and to see, well, what would have happened if you'd never been born? But he's not actually solving the problem that George presents him. I think you get,
1: as a result, though, you get more... First of all, it does. it's a film that does need some darkness, so it's nice that the darkness gets introduced, I think. Um, and then I think it needs... We need to see the problems in order to really uh, appreciate, I think, the goodness. And I think that if if you do it the other way around, I don't think you would see that as clearly. It certainly wouldn't be as dramatic, I guess. You need that that tension, that darkness, in order for it to be... A dramatics I don't know that it would work the same way
0: um, yeah I not mean, I don't think it would I agree
1: but I I mean there's I just love this film I and mean, I love everything about it more and more each time I see it like there are some small problems that I'd love to talk about but um, I overlook so much I love I don't I don't mind the Capricorn thing um and on seeing it this time right after we saw um, Kess a couple weeks ago um, you right. know these are two like directors at least in this film, um, they're sort of going after these, you know, these, um, I think these, um, collectivist, uh, themes and these, you know, th- there's the social realism of Loach, uh, and it's very gritty and soothsayer-like, and then I think Capricorn is very, uh, he's so optimistic, and, um, he, they're getting at the same ideas. Um, but from really, really different angles. And this is, as you said, this is one of Capric- uh, Capric- Capric- <laughs> Capra's later films. Um, and he's kind of, yeah, he had sort of a hard, hard run, I suppose, but this is sort of him at the probably the height of his powers, and he's making just a fantastic film um, we have a really, really strong message. So I did have these sort of flashes of, of uh, Ken Loach's work as well, which seems really ironic because they're very, such different filmmakers, but they're trying to communicate the same thing and, I think Capra does get some of that darkness in there that Loach gets in in his films. And I think that's really important. But he, he ends up on such a, you know, such a brighter moment. Um, another thing that I like about that way of doing the film is the actors. There are a lot of great actors who get to play complete opposites of, of themselves in the film. Um, you know, like when you think... Uh, right. um, Nick, the the bartender who gets to play, mm. you know, George's friend and really Mr. Nice Guy. And then he gets to play a, like a very sort of, uh, goonish, almost, uh, caricature, uh, Italian um, bartender sort of thing or um, Dr. Gower or Mr. Gower who um, you know, without George's uh, intervention would have ended up um, in prison and drunk and mm. uh, that's an actor who had played Jesus Christ just a few years earlier and here he was <laughs> playing this this <laughs> drunken uh, um, unlicensed or, or banned uh, banished uh, pharmacist um, and I've got a, a medical question for you. At one point, when he tests the poison, he just puts his finger in it and then tastes it. That doesn't seem like a great way
0: to test it. Yeah, no, that's mistake, the way they always it? get us to test poison in medicine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. that's a standard um,
1: method. Or Mary playing this spinster librarian. I mean, you get these, these opposite, these actors, you're giving them a chance to play a completely different character because George had, uh, had his influence
0: on them in, in, in their lives. And I think that's a really nice touch. I, I do wonder how one might feel watching this film Uh, As a person of colour these days, there are only two characters of colour in the film. There is Annie the Maid, who is, um, you know, she who is, you know, kind of sassy black maid character type A. Um, And then the only other black character who appears is a pianist at a kind of degenerate bar in Pottersville. Yeah. Um otherwise, it is very much it, it's a pretty it's uh, it's you know it's a, a white bread film about D- white people very much and yeah. it was a, a film made for a white audience in nineteen forty six so yeah. i I guess I should temper my expectations of the times yeah, yeah, um well, there's the the martini mr martini also there's a
1: stereotype there we could call the cliche squad if you oh, yeah, the, you know the, he's yeah, got tons yeah. of kids, they've got the heavy accent. Um, there's a goat in the back seat of the car when they're moving. I mean, it's just it's <laughs> uh, yeah, it's top. So um, that's yeah, that's one of the faults. Um, But there's a there's just so much great stuff that I I I I can't I can't fault them too much on that. It's, it's this film is now what 80 years old or something like that, or going on 80 years yeah. old. So it's definitely a uh, an old an old film. But I, again, it's its ideas are increasingly current. I guess or are increasingly relevant. Um,
0: there's Which also, is shocking and depressing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's this one moment where George is on the, I think he's on the bridge or is he, um, he might be in the bar and he says, I'm not a praying man. You know, I love that. I mean, it's a, <laughs> this free thinker. I mean, because obviously I think the United States was an even more religious place back then. So for him to say something like that, um, you know, just, uh, it sort of brings up this whole question of free thinking and independence and and um, uh, whether or not we have power over our own lives and, and whatnot. Um, and there that, you know, there's some intense moments. He is, you know, considering suicide at that moment. And it's dealt with really, really quite well, I think. Um, there are a couple of... I, I'll go right to my my biggest problem with this film. And I think most of my family yeah. agrees. And it's... Um, I'm going to preface it by talking about Persian rug makers. <laughs> of course. If you don't mind. Um, it's that... Um, you know the Persian rug makers allegedly they leave one mistake in the in the rug that they're creating because that would it would be uh, an offense to Allah if you um, tried to create something perfect because only He can do that um, and perfection doesn't exist. Um, so the last line you've already talked about it a little bit. Um, miraculously, this book it's it's uh, Tom. Oh God. Not Huckleberry Finn, it's the other one, Tom Ogun. Tom Sawyer? Tom Sawyer. Sawyer. I think uh, Clarence is reading Tom Sawyer, and and he's written a dedication in the front of the book, and it ends up in this pile of money that all the people have been uh, contributing to save George. Um, It gets in there miraculously. We don't see Clarence in that scene. And then he's written, his inscription is, um, Remember, no man is a failure who has friends. And I've always hated the wording of that because it really should be: "Remember, no man who has friends is a failure.
0: (laughs) You can be a failure
1: who has friends, um, but you can't. If you, no man who has a lot of friends could be a failure. So it's just this really weird mistake to me. And I I wonder if you feel the same way, or if I'm just uh, if I'm obsessing on it because. And I think the reason I'm obsessing on it is because it's such a perfect film. Otherwise, it's so great." And then this last thing, you could watch this film with my family and everyone just goes, ugh, at the end because you've had this cathartic experience. And then you just see what looks like kind of just, if if not bad grammar, it is um, unacceptable. It's just, uh,
0: it's imprecise, I guess. Um, How's your feeling on that? So well, maybe it was Yoda that they got to write the uh, <laughs> the dedication. <laughs> so, so am I, like, I'm just going to check here. So it's definitely it's the word order and not the sentiment that yeah, you object to. Precisely. Here. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, well, is that nitpicking? I, <laughs> well, I see. I, it strikes me as it's nice to end on the word friends. I guess. Okay. And I'm sure that's what the intention was, wasn't it? And okay. you know, if you end up with this kind of slightly cheesy. Like pseudo-German word order, then <laughs> it may be uh, people are prepared to accept I, that. I, I must just... say, if that's your biggest complaint, goddamn, this film is perfect. Very nearly, then, isn't it? That's ninety-nine point nine percent.
1: Yeah, I think it is a masterpiece. I think it. There, there's some in terms of filmmaking or editing. There's some jarring scenes, and we talked about this when we talked about they were expendable. Where. They go from a a fairly wide angle to just a less wide angle and it just jogs my thinking because um, it's not cut perfectly. I don't know if you've noticed these sorts of moments. It's the moment where – in particular where um, Uncle Billy is taunting uh, Potter and he goes to give him the newspaper that has the $8,000 in it and – to, to, I guess to show clearly that the newspaper goes to Potter, he goes from uh, a fairly wide angle to something that's just not close enough in my mind. It's kind of this one of those mid-range angles, and as a result, you see the you see the imp- the imprecision of the actor's movements, and it's just um, it's very common. We saw it a bunch in. Uh, the John Ford film. Um, and I think mm. it's just, in this day and age, we generally go from, you know, we don't have too many wide, wide angles that that go to something less wide. It's usually something, you know, sort of a medium angle, and then you get into your close-ups pretty straight away. And it's uh, it's just a different era of filmmaking, but I think as a result, um, and a different era of editing too, I think that's probably, it's this combination that makes a, a handful of moments in the film just are a little inelegant in their transitions as a result.
0: Um, apparently it was a ninety day shoot. They did you know, is is, is, yeah. is it two hours, eleven minutes, something like that, and they got yeah. the whole thing in ninety days. I yeah. think they worked you know hard and efficiently yeah. on this. Yeah. Um, there is the, interestingly you talk about um, use of the camera. I think there was one moment that slightly stood out for me, which is um, I think he crosses the line at one point when I think it's the scene where the the jilted boyfriend is considering whether or not he might open up the the floor. Uh, to spill everybody into the into the swimming pool oh, yeah, the dance, and I think there's him and his buddy are speaking, and the the boy there's like the jilted boy is on the right, and the friend is on the left, and then at the very next shot. Because the camera is now behind them so that they can look at the button oh, yeah. that will open up the door. Now, suddenly, the jilted boyfriend is on the left and the friend is on the right. Yeah, And things, uh, those little things, I mean, you still see that in films today. And it, yeah. that kind of crossing the line, it just jolts me a little bit. But I'm not sure I ever would have noticed that before I started reading about about kind of uh, film.
1: That sort of yeah, technique, yeah. I, th- I see it all the time in film now. I think it was very rare. In fact, we were instructed against doing it
0: absolutely yeah Yeah, exactly i think yeah it's it's bad practice isn't it it, crossing the line but you see yeah you see it not uncommonly yeah but again yes we're we're nitpicking gits aren't we well (laughs) again
1: it's like you're looking (laughs) in some ways when you know there's a persian rug maker you start looking at your rugs very carefully right you're looking for that one mistake because you know it's there um but otherwise it's it's really just uh one of my favorite films and I'm glad that it's not too Christmassy cuz I can watch it anytime. I mean that's the thing about ah. it. For me it's really it's just a great story and it's a really well put together film and um I have very little negative to say about it. So
0: I've been trying to kind of do the, do the synthesis to bring the two films together. Yeah. And it's you know it's it this is a tricky one. This is mm. a very long rope that you have to pull on yeah. to draw these <laughs> two films into the same plot. I mean uh, effectively um I suppose they both share this notion that Christmas is about family, or yep. this notion, kind of, sort of, that you should be grateful for what you have, or at least that there's kind of something about honesty and coming clean and, you know, trust and faith, I suppose, you know, are kind of, um, are both themes for these films. I think the thing that makes that rope really hard to pull on to draw these films together is that, um, it's the question of stakes i think in what in it's a wonderful life there are such real stakes there's like you said this a kind of real darkness it's proper life or death yeah. and even the scenes which are not about life and death it's still about you know your livelihood your home putting a roof over your head looking after your family really you know big important things yeah um whereas your christmas or mine you know i i'm struggling to think really what the stakes are it feels like the stakes are extremely Mm. low and what's at risk is very small Mm -hmm. um and uh they they do attempt to shed a little bit of darkness amongst the light even in your christmas or mine because there's the speech that Haley's dad gives about oh i miss my dead mum," yeah you know and and sometimes think about her and they're, they're really trying to stitch that into the fabric of the film but it just won't fit yeah um and it sort of feels a little bit like lip service whereas um for it's a wonderful life you know that darkness you know is present throughout the whole film yeah. you know, death stalks this film doesn't it which is why it's so effective as an uplifting joy at the end uh, so you know, they are covering a little bit of the same ground yeah i'm going to i'm going to go surprisingly high and i think
1: following your lead i like what you said about um class being more divisive than race and i think that's kind of in the th- it's definitely in. It's in Wonderful Life, and I think it's definitely in a little bit, as you said. Um, and maybe they didn't do it well enough, or not enough, or maybe they didn't want to draw much attention to it. But there's something really lovely. It's pluralistic. Uh, the uh, what is it called? Your Christmas or mine? It's a bit more pluralistic, yeah. way more than It's a Wonderful Life. Ultimately, but It's in Wonderful Life is definitely working on this class level um, that is, I think, again, more relevant today than it ever was. Um, and, you know, are as you said, there are very few minorities or people of color, and it's a wonderful life, but it really hammers on the class, whereas more, um, there's more representation, I think, in Your Christmas or Mine, yeah. and it maybe doesn't um, talk so much about class, but I think it's, it's in there. Um, so they're, you know, they kind of complement each other in that way, I think, and maybe, you know, yeah. probably unintentionally on the, on the Your Christmas or Mine level, but they do. I think, you know, filmmakers are intentionally trying to bring more cultures into the same film and put, um, you know, all walks of life in, in the same film. So I think uh, that has to be
0: intentional on, on one level. And it's certainly, it's, you know, it's impossible and unthinkable that the makers of Your Christmas or Mine have not seen It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, ab- absolutely impossible, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's impossible that it will not have influenced that film. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, it, well, okay, good. I had, in the, bonus. oh my God, bonus features. I saw this on DVD. Um,
1: <laughs> and you don't get bonus features anymore, but it was so... Remember them. So, so lovely. I saw a 60th... Oh, I miss those bonus features. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I saw a 60th anniversary version of uh, It's a Wonderful Life on DVD. Um, it, does, it does strike me that we're deeper into the information age now and we have less information in our uh, DVD, in our films, I guess. Um, yeah. But I did learn that um, one reason that um, It's a Wonderful Life became huge. It, it did not, like, um, open well. It was not uh, an instant classic by any means. Um, but its copyright had expired, I guess, in 1975, fairly early on <laughs> in 75. So, but, you know, it had 30-year run or something like that. Um, and then as a result, because it was available, it flooded television everywhere. So it became this television hit. Um, and I just I, I love that because it's, it's more accessible. It's like serving the collective and not focused on money as a result. You know, it's, it's making it's making uh, change in society, but not um, not, not making money. Um,
0: so that was interesting to me. Um, yeah, the film film really yeah, took off when it was for everyone.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, we, we have just enough time to talk about what else is playing at this theatre. Yeah, do you want to go first? What else have, you, have you seen anything good lately? I have. I
1: don't think I've been to the theatre, though, but um, I've seen two films. And their connection, if I did a miniature uh, 2 reel cinema club, oh, yeah. their connection was Jesse Plemons in Small roles.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, wait a second. Let's see. Can I guess? Oh, yeah,
1: please. Oh, one was a recommendation right from uh, your world. From your, it actually came to me two places. My brother recommended this film, and then you recommended, I think, in the last or maybe it was two pods ago, two or three pods ago.
0: Oh, God. The only cameo I can think of from him now at the moment is that terrible rock movie, Jungle Cruise. And I can't imagine <laughs> you watched that recently. <laughs> no. What is the, what are the films? No.
1: I watched um, American Made, which you had just seen. Um, oh yeah, Tom Cruise. I mean, he has a very small part in that. I mean, he—that's what. To, it's funny though because it's not that old. American Made is, I think, twenty seventeen or something like that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Really
1: enjoyed that film. Um, and uh, Jesse Plemons has already been in some films by that point And then um, uh, Breaking Bad um, had a recurring role in there. Um, and then we also saw a film by Paul Thomas Anderson called. I think it's just called The Master, which is a few years earlier, 2012. Oh. He plays Philip Seymour Hoffman's son in that film. Um, God, I'd forgotten he was in that. Yeah, very well. Right. Again, not a massive role. He's got some dialogue, but um, two films that uh, featured a little bit. Jesse Plemons. So those are the two that I've seen recently. I didn't get out to the theater. Um, there's some stuff, and I know that for our next pod I'll be going
0: to the theater, but we'll talk about that after you talk about what's playing in your... Home theatre well, So Well um, We actually did go to the theatre theatre The other night We went to see uh, Sleeping Beauty The ballet at oh. Sadler's Wells This is yesterday uh, The Matthew Bourne production It's a kind of a gothic version yeah. Of Sleeping Beauty Which is absolutely fantastic oh, nice. Five stars Absolutely incredible Fantastic oh, The tickets we originally bought um, I think we bought them We bought them first week in January in 2020
1: Yeah
0: Oh And then the show was cancelled at the end of 2020 Yeah and then they rebooked us for 2021 and then there was another COVID spike in 2021. So we didn't go. And at last, so we've been waiting for almost three years to go and see this. Um, yeah. So that was great. That was fantastic. Yeah. Um, but the only other movie we've seen recently, we watched um, Hot Rod, uh, which is the first Lonely Island uh, feature film. Andy Samberg um, plays a kind of evil Knievel wannabe. Um, and uh had, had the desired effect because it did make us guffaw with laughter a few times. But it's uh, one of those films where the funniest thing about it is somebody falling over and hurting themselves. <laughs> and Andy Samberg falls over a lot and hurts himself really badly many times. So th- that was why I guffawed out there. Uh, the people in my family would love that. <laughs> they love that kind of comedy.
1: Um, I'm glad you got to see Sleeping Beauty. It's a fantastic score. I love that, that, uh, that music. And then... Um, when we, our our listeners know Inesh Braga, who ah. um, when I was arranging to do the pod, uh, have her on the pod, she made it a point to FaceTime me from in front of Sadler's Wells because we used to Ooh. go there a lot to see a dance together. So um, we've got a connection uh, straight from the pod to Sadler's Wells and your experience there. So I miss that place. I saw so much good
0: stuff there. Um, you're a lucky man. Yeah, we are. We're very lucky that it's here, just the other end of the tube line to us. So, uh, you hinted a moment ago... Oh, I did. ...that you have a plan for what we might watch next. Yeah. I think we're going to um, go blue. (laughs) Go big blue. Sorry, is this this the Israeli porn thing again? We're
1: going to uh, watch Avatar, the newest uh, James Cameron film, I believe. Um, And we're going to couple that with some older James Cameron. We were both surprised to find that The Abyss was released in 1989. So those are 33 years apart. We'll see what uh, James Cameron has done done um in that time we'll see if his uh his filmmaking technique has changed at all and if he's um you know uh, created any new technologies to to make his stories that come across any differently <laughs> so we'll be looking forward to that but it will be a couple of weeks down the line do you want to explain the
0: uh, next couple of weeks to yeah so uh so next week we're going to be talking about christmas movies when we go to the popcorn counter and then the week after that very exciting oscar season comes around and uh, we'll be presenting the uh new and exclusive much talked about Two Real Cinema Club Film of the Year Ooh. I'm assuming that that was that's the noise you make of anticipation yes. it wasn't you rested your hand on the radiator there no. or something like that and it was very hot building no, okay, excitement trying to put <laughs> a little
1: sound out there to
0: build excitement Ooh. so uh, this has been this week's Two Real Cinema Club we will see you for Christmas uh, Christmas movies uh, next week until then thanks for listening we'll see you then and happy holidays